Hey, Superstructure listeners, it's Will. I wanted to introduce this episode with an announcement for anyone who didn't know, which is that we're launching a Patreon membership drive for the Money on the Left and Superstructure Project. We have some big plans, including the launch of a website, an academic journal, a popular writing platform, as well as plans to compensate our behind-the-scenes collaborators who help us with graphic design, audio engineering, and more. We have plans for various premium content for members, starting off with a lecture series from Scott Ferguson's course on the neoliberal blockbuster, which we kicked off last week with a discussion between Scott Ferguson and Max Seho on Avengers Infinity War. In the meantime, thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to Superstructure, everyone. Today we have a special guest and interview as well as an omission. Uh, Will couldn't be here with us because we're actually recording this on Christmas Eve and sucker, he has to go hang out with his family. So, um, but we do have, you know, the usual Natalie Smith. And then we have as well, Daniel Besner, a historian at the University of Washington. Welcome Daniel to Superstructure. Thanks for having me, guys. It's much appreciated. Yeah, so Thanks for coming on. One of the reasons why we uh, sort of wanted to have you on is I think, I mean, there's, there's quite a few, but I think one can start with thinking about this question of, of fascism and, and what I think you have started critiquing in your work as the fascism analogy or the Weimar analogy to our contemporary moment, which is something that I think we have spent some time thinking through in a, in, a, in a different way. And I think we come to perhaps some divergent conclusions, though I, my hunch is, is that actually there, there might be some similarities that, that come out from this, but we, we'll, we'll wait a second to get there. But um, among other things from some questions about what it means to be provocative and, and the general state of the left moving forward. And we, we thought it, that a conversation like this could be useful, especially coming out of uh, sort of the last few episodes where we spoke with Matt Chrisman about some of these questions and, and yeah, and mo- moving, moving into today, it feels like there's a, there's a sort of vacuum in, in the ideas space that, that I think perhaps conversations like this could, could be helpful for, for hashing out. So this, this is a safe idea space. <laughs> <laughs> Safe-ish. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, Natty and I have both read your book, and um, so there there are going to be, I think, maybe a few interesting asymmetries here with knowledge of of each other. But I guess I'd want to start with like. How are you thinking? <laughs> How are you thinking? I have never with... published a book. It's not fair. Yeah, you cannot spy yeah, on me. That, that's right. Super. Yeah. <laughs> not soon enough. Yeah. So yeah, I guess we just wanted to hand hand the floor to you to begin with to to start with like explaining perhaps what you do, what your work is, and how you're thinking about these sort of questions of you know I, I suppose we could call it the historical moment as it as it sits today. Sure. No, it's an important question, I think, uh, especially for historians. Uh, Well, I mean, I'm I'm an intellectual historian. Um, uh, I actually got my PhD with an advisor who's a Europeanist. So technically, I'm a European historian, though I... uh, 
my project, like many people who entered academy, uh, the academy, particularly PhD programs in the late 2000s, is a transnational history project. Uh, the book you guys read focuses on a man named Hans Speyer, who was a, a left-wing social democrat in Weimar, Germany, um, and then who migrated to the United States very soon after Hitler um, was appointed to the chancellorship in January 1933 uh, and became a very important American foreign policymaker. He's at the Office of War Information. He's one of the first generation of people at the Rand Corporation, very influential guy. But the book was basically tracing how uh, this basic shift from the... Um, social democratic uh, left to the what became Cold War liberalism in the 1950s and, and how it happened and the role that intellectuals played in forming institutions of what I term the American Paris states because the American state is unique um, because unlike in, in, in Germany or in uh, throughout Latin America or throughout really Western Europe, um, think tanks are basically um, unofficial organs of the federal state, which isn't necessarily true. Uh, oftentimes they're connected to political parties. Oftentimes they're like genuinely um, independent in a way that our think tanks aren't. Uh, and so just uh, tracing the development of that model and how it came to be that people who, you know, had quote unquote good politics created institutions of uh, American imperial hegemony that still endure today. So that's the first book. Uh, and an important part of that was uh, how the um, deployment of uh, a fascist analogy or the uh, c consistent designation of crisis was a means by which these intellectuals uh, justified uh, actions, institutions, um, ideas that they themselves understood to be anti-democratic. So that's just brief uh, what I did uh, historically. And what I write about publicly is really foreign policy, uh, the academy, the sort of decline of the American academy, and uh, a couple of times the sort of fascism analogy, which I find um, semi, uh, let's just say problematic to start. But why don't you guys tell me what your take is on the analogy, and then we could go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, I think to start with, I, you know, I, I would say in, in my work, and it's funny because I, I, you know, I've done some projects on this sort of German to American mid-century uh, immigration of intellectuals as well. And, and I, you know, specifically trying to think through some of these questions around the historical prescience of thinking about fascism. And so I think one thing to, that I'd want to bracket first and foremost from a critical left conversation about this analogy, um, which I I would also agree that it is is still a necessary component of it. Is this sort of liberal um, scapegoating sort of otherizing project of naming anything that looks either you know statist or in any way uh, sort of conservative? as fascism identically, right? Like that, that it, it perfectly is reproducing a sort of fascist political, economic and social uh, ideology. So I, I so guess- say there is a bad, there is a sector that uses a bad faith read. That is a real phenomenon, yeah. Right, but, um, uh, but if, if trying to understand fascism, I think is importantly to take that transnational sort of history, but also intellectual space seriously in the ways that not only the American history of genocide came to influence German fascist thinkers, but also the, the way that is a, a sort of reciprocal relationship. So I think I'd start there. Um, 
briefly, I just want to lay my cards on the table. Yeah. I think that's been over-exaggerated in the literature. As someone who started as a historian of the Nazis, this has been exaggerated by people writing in the United States. I it's think a thing. the influence of the United States on Nazi Germany. I think that is, I, I mean, this is a historical take that I believe as a historian. I think Americans have exaggerated that. I think it's much more um, powerful when you're talking about sort of transnational statist plans like the New Deal and Russia and Italy and Germany. I think it's much less important when you're talking about like the racialized imaginary of Germany. There's a much more powerful indigenous tradition in Deutschland connected to the church going back millennia um, that they don't need even the, the, the few references Hitler made to America do not. And this is a problem I have with transnational history in general, do not equate to a powerful causal force on what generated the Holocaust. So I just want to lay my historical cards on the sure, table. Sure. And I, I, you know, I think that that's a, that's a fair critique, I guess, to say that, that, you know, that, that would be the initial component that I think at least, and perhaps this is, to take the the strict efficient causality out of it, the, there's this sense of an imaginary of what fascism has come to 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 be, which I think is what we're dealing with. Of course, importantly, when we're making these analogies, and that this is a in in the in the right deployment of fascist imagery, especially in America, I don't think we can necessarily cleave the two so so cleanly. But that but I think that's a that's a a, a perhaps another disciplinary take than a purely historical question. But I actually think that that doesn't necessarily get at- It certainly at seems that Germany has its own traditions and power because, you know, like doing a podcast, I've learned I need to know about uh, German translations of, uh, for, <laughs> what's the word? For, for and I'm like, God damn it. I don't, I don't know the German. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going <laughs> to- a millennia ago. That's interesting, but I think I'm making a serious point, which is that like the category of fascism is super complicated and not cut and dry. And that is what's interesting that in this imaginary, there's this like whole soup of stuff that's on different traditions and scales. Like I was on a deep dive on uh, Max is going to debate C. Derek Varn, you know, for zero books. And I was listening to old podcasts about what is fascism. And it's like, holy shit, it's like the literature is so broad, there's so many questions, so it's like, I'm on a tangent. But the point I'm making is that it's easy to say like, well, this isn't exactly the same thing as this or that fascism, or this German fascism comes from this old thing from the church, but also there was the US military becoming hegemonic and like, which, like, you can't, it's not that transnational histories where everything just bleeds together, there are like particularities, but it's also not the case that you can find these poles where it's just like, oh no, Germany just like dug into the ground and found their deep fascist tradition. Like the particularities of fascism are always present and melding into each other. Does that make sense? And Max, if I, if I can add to that, I think <laughs> the American project is also linked to the the Saxon project of, of you know, as you said, the, the sort of German church project. So the, there's there are linkages here that are not clean, but I think we want to just like start with with those, which, you know, again, on efficient causality and the literature, I, I have not read that literature to the degree that you have. So I, I'm going to take your word for that. But um, but I think so that that would be sort of step one, I think, in this in, in the way we think about this definition, I guess, is the the intertwining of the American genocidal project with the German one 
not as a matter of this intellectual specifically thought about and, and like took notes down in an efficient way, but in the sense of a sort of, you know, a sort of Western imaginary, which, which might be too loose a definition, but we can talk about that. Going back to Bartolomeo de las Casas, he's a fascist in, in the 1500s. I mean, the genocidal project is, is right there from the first encounter. Well, well, okay. So then, I mean, if we actually wanted to get into that, my argument about fascism really is that there's a direct link between a project of imminence as a philosophical matter and a sort of scarcity in, in exclusionary logic that beco- becomes the sort of the high watermark in German fascism in the 20th century. But I'm not sure that the, the scope and scale necessarily is relevant to hashing out this exact question, if that makes sense. So like, I, I agree in a in a certain sense in a in a certain sense. What do you mean sense. by imminence? Uh, in the sense people of people are going to say, the, what are you talking about? Well, fallenness, right? A sort of material fallenness <laughs> into into a world, and and the slow trek of modernity toward individualization, materialization, and and atomization. Whether thinking through the the sort of fall of the of the Catholic Church and the in the religious wars, and 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 you know, obviously the Reformation. We we could go on and on and on. But so so the way that I, I what I'm hearing you say is that there are trends in modernity that you've identified as fascist. As having as as preceding logics of that ultimately come into being in fascism. Sure. Right. What? What? Just we to say, like, why this very specific historical term? Which, if we're going to let's use philosophy, which in common sense meaning everyone knows, everyone thinks of the Nazis. It is yes. ridiculous to pretend that in the United States, when you use fascist, you they're thinking of Argentina or even Mussolini. I have a question about that, which, why, why does, it's interesting, it's like you're reading it from the point of view of who is thinking what, like, which is valid, but I, I think that people are thinking of other things oftentimes, like that, like, as I've heard you make the argument that that it matters that the people in charge are thinking it's Nazi, like, does that make sense? But I think here, like, I, people might think, I know that's like, you're talking about the US context, but like if you say fascist here, like people will in Chile, people will think of Pinochet, I mean. For sure, I mean, but this is a debate that that I'm participating in in the American public sphere. Well, right. I mean, if so, you're talking in, in Chile, then my talk would be different. I mean, historians, I mean, it's just context, you know, like we're in a context. And so when people are like, um, I mean, and he's, he's a great scholar, but when Federico Finkelstein, you know, is talking about fascism in Latin America, that's just not that relevant to what people think in the United States. Um, it's just, that's just empirics, a fact. Well, right. Well, right. So I, so I guess this is the, the crux of it, right? So you, ha- you are positioning yourself proximately to this public debate, which I totally understand as a matter of rhetoric. And like we, you know, we on this podcast take these sorts of methodological or framing questions very seriously. Um, and so, and and I do think- I do not. I do think there there's real benefit to fighting, you know, whether you want to call them elites or liberals on their terms, but I think as an analytical matter, we want to take a step back and really try and shift the framework because we, 
another way of saying this is if you is don't that, do that you can't fight the liberals correctly if you well, don't there, have the full analysis that would be one argument but then also you can't i mean what ultimately we want to do is contribute to a fight on the left about a, a an analytical and strategic perspective that's coming out of scholarship that we want to to affirm that is we feel like is being underrepresented so then i would say to that i i hear that i respect that i think it's a it's a it's an um it's a a coherent project. Um, and then this winds up devolving into the Czech fascism checklist, which is not that interesting to me. And I don't think that actually important strategically, frankly. Uh, you don't love just, Timothy uh, Snyder? <laughs> not even Tim. It's like <laughs> then it, four or five major theorists of fascism. You choose your own. And then he's a fascist or he's not, which fine. Um, but I think the, the importance of this term is not that. The importance of this term is not just the purely analytical definition of fascism, because then you get what Jason Stanley does, which is true insofar as it goes, which is that in political modernity, there are fascist strands, just like there are social democratic strands, just as there are liberal strands, and it exists throughout all of North, the North Atlantic world because they're uh, coming from a common source and blah, 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 blah. It's just not that importance. Well, I, so this is actually, I'm glad you brought up Jason Stanley, because I think this is a, is a good point to, to, to then distance ourselves from this purely, as you as you would one could call it, analytic tradition, right, of of a definitional structure. Because ultimately, I mean, you know, I, I'll lay my cards down here, right? Like, I the title of my master's project was anti-fascist aesthetics, right? The the point. Wow, being, so you can't do that. Um, and so aesthetics are the fascism. It's a face. Nobody well, wants. Well, I mean, your we face. we can get That's into enough. that, but. But the, I think the point is, is we have a have a, an aesthetic, a political and an economic strategy for resistance that we're wanting to base upon. And, and albeit, which I still haven't got quite to the kernel of, of the way we're thinking about it strategically and politically as a definition, albeit a narrow and a um, and a, a, a disciplinarily distinct or we one could call it interdisciplinary relationship to this term, because even in some of my work, I have identified from, from a more psychoanalytic perspective and not to, to like, I already feel arrogant saying I have identified, but, um, but I, you know, I, I've the worked collective with, unconscious has brought you into the knowledge of ourselves. Well, right. The collective unconscious of this <laughs> term, Natty, uh, of fascism, the way it plays out as this sort of circular, uh, process that doesn't really get us anywhere except for playing through the symptoms of invoking fascism over and over and over again, right? And and so right, the sort I, of Adorno or yeah, this aesthetic exhaustion that is not going anywhere, and then yeah, right. And so I I hear you, like I do really hear you, and I like I I recognize that the purely analytical definition doesn't get us anywhere, but. And this is where I think we, I and we want to bring MMT into this conversation. The question Here you go of, again. right, the historical question of the political economy that led to German fascism has a particular shape, right? And we can think about the way even the left capitulated to this sort of sound finance um, logics within Weimar that and how it's still misunderstood today, how Weimar is still the hyperinflation case that people haven't even learned about how finance works. Right. And, and, and so yeah, anyway. and so re-articulating and re-educating, importantly, what actually led politically, economically, which is not to think in a sort of reductive base way, but in a in a more enmeshed constitutive way about the way political economic ideology and then the actual 
whether it's then legislatively enacted or so who do you who do you follow on the on the on the financial collapse of Weimar? So Feldman? myself. Say say it again. So <laughs> I historian do you follow? I would imagine Feldman. So Robert Gates, I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Gates's his essay on on Weimar and the crisis. It is a sort of arcane essay from the 70s. Um, is it the industrial and political development in the Weimar Republic? No, it is um, German socialism in the in the crisis. I believe it's called. Okay. Um, I mean, just I, the reason I ask is that like this is yeah okay this is like a very very like hot topic of debate. Yeah. Uh, sort of like and uh, have you heard about the Abraham scandal and all that? So I you know I I haven't and I I have to admit that that the way we're working around this history is, is very political. So, you know, I, I definitely more work needs to be done in, in, I mean, you know, reading all of this literature, it's actually not even my area of, of academic focus, but just thinking critically about our vision. Um, way to go, there, Max. There, there are, you know, there, there's, whether you want to call it inflation hawkery, <laughs> I mean, we, we can think of, of Hilferding yeah. on the left side, um, you know, Bruning and, and the centrist, and then obviously, um, Hilferdin, Hilferdin wanted to nationalize Walmart, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of great biographies of Hilferding, if, if you want to, that I think are really, really helpful. Um, I actually, I, I don't mind Hilferding. Um, I think he's gotten a bit of a bad rap. You're talking about Finans Capital, I assume, right? Well, I mean, there's there's his theoretical and, and, and critical work, but I think then there's his also his, his engagement with the SPD. And I don't know if I you've heard of... I love the SPD. Vladimir Wojtynski. So um, but... Um, and, and his work as a, as a trade unionist economist for the SPD. And there's another figure named Fritz Naftali, who was an economic advisor to the SPD. But no, I, I, this, is my, this is my exact research. Cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. This is my liturgy. So, yeah, I mean, I figured, I figured as much. But Fire worked for Hilferding. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right. So, okay, what's, what's one like anecdote about Hilferding? As, as a, was he like a, an asshole? Was he an interesting person? Um, I mean, I think he's, <clears throat> I, I don't, mm, he seemed fine. I mean, like the big critique is kind of what you get today, right? Which is what is the connection between the leadership of the SPD and the masses, right? So the big, the big debate in Weimar is based, really, really mirrors today, which is should the SPD be a class party or should it be a people's party? I.e. should it be a working class party or more general party? And Hilferding was on the side of the more general party, the, of what they call the Volkspartei, mm -hmm. um, Volkspartei. And other people were more like it should be a class in Partei. So it depends on like where you fall in that that debate. But yeah, I mean, I think he was trying to deal with like the rise of finance capitalism, like more so in, in a context that, you know, is much more relevant to our own than uh, anything that we can point to in the Russian Revolution. So I'm all for reading Elferding. So, I mean, I'm all for reading anyone, but I guess the point is, is the, the point that we want to make here, right, is there's this naturalization of a sort of, sound finance structure that leads to a sort of deferral uh, analytically in that time to the crises of capitalism instead of other plans that were on the table that took a more proactive and what we would could call a more adjacent, you know, chartalist or MMT view to thinking about budgetary economics and political economy that were rejected in the name of letting the crisis play out, number one, in the fear of inflation, number two, and then uh, 
which ended up enacting a deferral of the question of unemployment to the Nazis. And so there, there's a few aspects of this historically that then lead into the way we want to recenter the question of non-zero-sum political economy and non-zero-sum social relationality as a practice that resists the sort of, you know, the necessity that like the square one flat reified zero sum redistributionary pie to begin with, right? And so not, and not in the sense of like growing the pie in a capitalist bullshit sense, right? But in, in, this, in this real sense of a sort of socialist- Social democracy only works when we can, if we don't understand funding and we think social democracy can only work when the economy is doing well, then we have to like root for capitalists to give us taxes to fund Medicare, which is not how that actually works. Or if we have to rely on Walmart to nationalize Walmart, then we have like, not encountered all those systems like it's like a so help me <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, so, so sound finance and zero-sum political economic budgeting which is historically a, a, a sort of ideological function of neoliberalism and then liberalism generally is actually leads to and contributes to a sort of exclusionary logic that 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 ends in fascism, right? And not as some sort of teleology, but as a, as, a, as a sort of logical structure where, I mean, what do we see today, right? We see perhaps like you start with this sort of, you know, coming out of the neoliberal moment when everything's going, you know, everything's going very liberally and swimmingly and we have this expansion of the e economics and then what, what happens, right? Funding goes down, we end up, the, the middle and lower classes just get deteriorated over and over and over, unemployment, spikes, we get the financial crisis, on and on and on, and we can't properly recover because we can't afford it, right? And so then that leads to reactions and all of these sorts of things. So it's this undergirding ideological framework of zero-sum scarcity that contributes to reactions in all colors and, and, and plays into the hands of right-wingers. Whether we want to call them fascist or not, I think there's a debate and we might disagree on that, but this is the way we're thinking about anti-fascism right and i think that's the key the key turn of the screw i don't think you need fascism for any of that uh, i think that that's a great program i'm behind it it sounds great i don't think you need fascism i think that the on one hand the actual history is more complicated as you know you know sure. these are like extraordinarily complex things happening Histories uh, always are complicated in, in, a, in a variety of different ways and I, I am not sure not if i just apply the hegelian dialectic then it gets pretty simple yeah especially given well that's also true very and that's what i do in life just dialectics <laughs> i mean i think that's a light rough argument to make because the argument works more actually not for fascism but more for centrist or what would really be right-wing liberalism in the center party which of course was in power between 30 and 33 and paved the way for hitler under a presidential dictatorship of of i mean like hilferding's out of power for four years before the nazis come to power um and i'm not sure what fascism really gets you i think it's more of a distraction i think that um I mean, you could talk about like the authoritarian inklings. I mean, I think it's pretty hard to claim that Trump is a fascist at this point. I think even the defenders of that are, are kind of like pulling pulling back on that one. But, but uh, I think that's a good program. I just don't think you need to have anything to do with fascism. But, it's a program for, uh, for justice, and you know, it's a it's a typical what, Marxist. What does program. fascism mean to you? What is what is real fascism? Like not in like a definitional way, but like what do you feel fascism is? 
I think fascism, what, maybe this is our major disagreement, but fascism doesn't make sense without having a generation of scarred young men from a war. That's the only thing that makes, that's an enabling condition of fascism. We don't have 100%. that. Well, I mean, we're dealing with a lot of, I mean, it's not World War One, but it, it's- Don't have that, flat out, don't have that. No, I will not give an inch on that. We do well, not have that. But it, but it doesn't have to be identical. And I think this is the point where, right, so we're dealing with tendencies- without stormtroopers. Okay. We don't have it at the same scale, but we have absolutely that's violent under scarring. Of course, it's under all of them. It's under- it's the entire world that there is that's a fascist logic that people get thrown in jail for having a little bit of weed that people are beaten in the home they grew up in that people uh yeah you and i both probably know people who have died in iraq and afghanistan or have had heroin abuses but that's not a fascist logic plenty of other systems besides i'm saying about scarred young men from war is what i'm saying and but i think the, the the key here is just to 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 really unravel this there's this cleavage between liberalism and fascism that we specifically don't want to make, right? Fascism sort of gives rise to the sort of unconsciousness of liberalism. All of its, all of its contradictions and, and tendencies the towards- same scarcity. The scarcity and the need to exclude, whether it's, a level, it's, at, the, it's at the level of the, the, the price of things as a political matter, or if it's at the level of, of the literally at the gun, right? This is the Franz Neumann Frankfurt School argument. Well, it's so it's adjacent to it's adjacent to Possibly. the Frankfurt School, but importantly, <laughs> the Frankfurt School still defers to this sort of liberal money vision of scarcity, and this is where, right? So this is where I think you have like we're trying to turn the screw and and leave Hegelian uh, sort of this sense of Hegelian critique behind, because of course Hegel also defers to this this monetary scarcity and this liberal money. Hegelian trope. finance. Right. And, and this and this is something that, you know, I, I'm sure we, we can talk about then the provocative nature of this, too. But this is what distincts us from a purely Marxian program of redistribution. Right. Or 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 class struggle, because then there's the there's still the assumption of the finitude of capitalism on its own terms, which we want to reject as a as a methodological matter, but also then as a as a sort of historical matter as well, to bring it back to Weimar. The capacity was there to employ those scarred young men, right? The capacity was there. There are political constraints and and you know constraints around around treaties and constraints around um occupation and all of these these important questions that produce things like like hyperinflation but the capacity is still there and and if you reify that capacity to take care of people you're playing into the hands as a as 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 a sort of reification of liberal capitalism reifying the incapacity yeah right and you reify that incapacity to play into the hands of fascists so that's the point that's why that's why it's more of a movement than a flat designation right so there's trajectories that lead that have led to historically that are leading to reactions in right-wing resurgences today so it's that's what fascism gets us and you know to to be more reflexive about this it's precisely because fascism is so is, is so fraught in this imaginary right that i think it's important to to hold on to as a matter of mass political education, I, I just don't think we're going to be able to teach people not to think about this, this moment that is 
the de- like you know one of the defining moments of the last century. Um, and by, yeah, go no, no, Natty, you go. And by, and by employment, we mean like uh, we're getting to like what's the core political project, which is to collectively produce. And so how can we do that most democratically and for a thriving society? And it's like, yeah, if you have done wars and people are scarred, that's not what's happened. And so what do you need to do? Just the same way we've scarred the environment. Like we have to together somehow work to take care of each other and take care of the environment. And we can organize Green New Deals, job guarantees that there could be versions of that that are oppressive. Um, but the point is to democratize those trajectories to have, you know, we could have grants for art jobs, things that help heal. And that's what all of this comes down to. Yeah. I mean, I'm in, I'm in favor of that program. I mean, I would, I would probably disagree with the general historical argument being made. Um, but I mean, that's a good program. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I, I am in favor of that. I mean, I think you could talk about it at two levels. I think at the level of mass organization, this argument has absolutely no purchase. I think Chrisman's right. I think like that sort of thing is basically you need to have people in their workplaces and the major problem is not whether or not something leads to fascism. The major problem is precarity and alienation and labor. Which are related prevents- though. I don't think they're that related. It's, it's, it's the social relationships that are needed in order to build institutions that are able to challenge capital or power however you want. I don't see how that's really related to fascism. Um, but if you're talking about the level of the elite, uh, I mean, sure, if you think it's like a powerful way to convince liberals to go on your side, that's fine. I just, I don't think there's much historical demonstration of that. So, I mean, I, I, again, I think ultimately this question about the history is important, but it's less important than than this than this claim that you made about precarity and scarcity not being related to this sort of movement politics, this institution building politics. About the 70s to, to Reagan, the 70s, you know, this sort of inauguration of neoliberalism and we don't, we don't get full employment and then Reagan comes in, right? This, and there are fascist movements in the 80s, right? From Bring the War Home, that book, Bring the War Home by Kathleen Bellew, where people come home and are, you know, post-Vietnam are, are radicalized by the war and our boots on the ground in Mexico. And then you have Reagan in and like, this is coming right out of like war. And then a like late seventies failure to, to finance things and reify capitalism that was just born in nature or what? I mean, capitalism is an international. I mean, I just wouldn't say the terrorist nodes of the eighties and nineties are fascist. The white supremacist doesn't always, uh, isn't always analogous or equate to fascism. They're its own peculiar thing that has a deep history in the United States that I wouldn't, I mean, if you want to be like a lefty and you're at a rally and yell fascist, I mean, fine, that, that doesn't really matter. But I think that they're, they're its own thing and comparing them to what was going on in 20s, 30s Germany actually doesn't get to that much. Right. I mean, but here's the point, right? Like, well, maybe we are thinking from that person at the rally. Like, why are we necessarily necessarily thinking from the 30s? Just because like some liberal elite is thinking that if I want to be like, if I don't bash the fash, like that, <laughs> that is a political practice. It's not like, oh, because I checked the literature about the 30s. I think it's it's a different type of language in a different type of context. Sure. Um, well, well, right. I mean, it's a different. And type we are of in a political context. I mean. Yeah, I mean, we're we're wanting to bridge and embed ourselves in that context, but I guess I still want to come back to this. Like, if precarity is on the negative side, that which I mean, th- this is a you know, it produces right wing reaction. I mean, I don't think. 
I mean, that, that's the same argument. Like precarity can take many forms and precarity is also a psychological trauma of precarity as well. Thinking with the, the post-World War I context, right? So th there are linkages to the forms of precarity and scarcity and how they condition subjectivities and political subjectivities in the, these political, historical, and then also contemporary moments. So I guess, I mean, the, I just find it a little bit baffling that, that you don't think scarcity and precarity does contribute to how we come to build institutions politically. No, of course it does. I'm, I'm saying it doesn't. I mean, scarcity and precarity has existed <laughs> many, many times in many, many places, and it didn't always lead to fascism. So maybe it's an important condition that enables fascism in certain particular contexts. Um, but no, it's uh, it's ob it's obviously um, and of course central importance to building institutions, and I think today prevents the building of institutions in the United States. Like I said, to ca uh, challenge capital, I just don't think like. I don't think the, the linkage between precarity and fascism in a trans-historical sense. Um, Can I ask a question, which is uh, like a def another annoying definitional question, uh, but like, what is what is capital for you? What do you mean? Capital I don't know, is capital. say like we want to challenge capital. Are, what is capital? Uh, the owners of capital in a given society. In this, in this society, I think mostly uh, capital wealth. Um, the means of production capaciously defined from the internet to factories to um, other industrial sectors and areas. Yeah, I mean, the standard Marxist definition of capital. Well, I mean, right. That, so that's the point, I think, that we would disagree on, disagree on definitionally and analytically, right? Because we want to locate the legal structures of mediation as, as a priori to those. Oh, you think they're a priori? So you're a Schmidtian. So, <laughs> again... That's no. when the conversation has gotten serious. Right. So, <laughs> Schmidt, so, Schmidt has been invoked. <laughs> it, it's not. It, it's not a priori in a. You Gramscian, they just float. Sort of, the laws float from power. The laws right. just emerge from the amoeba of power. I mean, I think laws have a phenomenal. Personally, that's basically like, what I said. That they emerge from power. Laws. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, yeah. this. I mean, and we, we don't we, agree with that. We yeah. don't have to rehash that, but we don't agree with that in the sense that. Like, what is the medium of production? It's money, right? And money is a legal form. Um, and, and money has always been variously a legal form and as, as an anthropological matter. And so, um, so I mean, that's where... That's I mean, Graeber Graber is a component in this, but it's not limited to, to Graeber. I mean, there's... You, one, there's Chartalism. A, yeah, I mean, this is the, the sort of basis of what modern monetary as a historical anthropological project is espousing. But again, I mean, it's we don't have to hash this out necessarily right now, but point being, this is the perspective that we're coming from. I have a question of clarification. Sure. So you would say the law is capital? The, the law is constitutive to capital, but ultimately we disagree about what Marxists would call capital because we think capital is seen as outside the sort of political and legal democratic structures. I wouldn't say that. I'm, I'm a, obviously the, the base and the superstructure inform each other, of course. Right, but but saying that law is epiphenomena is exactly saying. Okay, so in, in, in an controls actual, everything. It's like cash rules everything around me, and cash was born in nature. It's like giving autonomy to that. Is like capital then starts developing on itself. The thing is that we are in. Capital is a category that's about like money that's been put into a system of 
profit, but there are other forms. Like if you're uh, working at a public hospital or if you work for the government or... And we're also working from legal history here. So Christine Dazon... Cash doesn't rule us. Yeah. We've let cash. Keep going, Sorry. Maddie. Sorry about that. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. But let ca- we've, we've deferred to capital. No, 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 no please. I was, my matter. thought was done. Um, uh, so I would say, yeah, I mean, that's true. When you're looking at history, these things all meld together and there's no clear causal relationship. In actual, the stream of history, these things mutually constitute each other. But when you're thinking about what do you want to do in actual politics, would you promote a movement to attack the legal structures of society? Or do you pro- uh, uh, promote a movement that tries to redistribute the material resources of society? But, but that's the point. You can't think one without the other constitutively. So you have to take on both. I would say we had the law of one. And it helps in some ways. And the fundamental structure of society remains the same. I'd say the last hundred plus years of liberal jurisprudence have been focused on reformulating the law without reformulating the fundamental capital relations of society. But it has, but the, cap, but the capital relations have been reformulated through the law. I mean, that's, we, we, you can't talk about finance capital without thinking about- At the SEC in 1933, right? This is the big innovation of the New Deal. And how, sure. is, that, how is that done for uh, the redistribution of capital in society in 2020? Well, but- What is the more powerful force? But, but the point is, is not to reify the power. The point is, is how do we want to most effectively struggle against it, right? I mean, that, that, is, that is fundamentally the point. I mean, we could, so yes, of course, capitalists are, more, are powerful. Like, we know this. This is not a, this is not a, a, a radical take, right? Like, Amazon pr- practically owns everything, right? But the way to get at Amazon, I think, the, and the reason why those like Chrisman fall into pessimism and not total pessimism, but a, a real, like a, a sort of deep sense of pessimism is because they're working from the framework of a 19th century de- definition of capitalism and resistance, and then mapping it onto our contemporary moment, right? You can't understand, I mean, you, we could bring it back to like, we could even say finance capital to, to make a reference to Hilferding. You can't understand contemporary financialized capitalism without understanding the way the legal structures are undergirding and mediating and that and, and most importantly the way agency over any of this process necessarily must reckon with those constitutive functions because we're I not mean, I agree. well right yeah. and so but but as, and it's important as a definitional and analytical matter to to not then bracket materiality and ma- the material structures as divorced from those that, no, they're not the they, they mutually think we just need to take some money from Bezos to fund ourselves. We want to take money from Bezos and because that's undemocratic, but not because Bezos's money funds the federal government, right? Yeah, no, they, they mutually <laughs> they mutually constitute each other. No, I totally agree. But I would say that in actual American history, we've had movements that done exactly what you've done, and they haven't fundamentally reoriented power in this country. Well, I mean, there there are you know there is work that it, that is done that has been done about this. I mean, there, there's a historical sociologist named Jakob Feinig who we've interviewed on the other podcast, Money on the Left, who has talked about money politics being a sort of silence politics in the since the New Deal, right? And the, how the New Deal enacted this silencing. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree, um, but I I would say if we could change all the laws we want, and in the end we won't get the world that we want to see. Well, right, unless we're changing the laws on the ter- on these terms. So I totally agree. Uh, you can't, 
we it's not going to be just an elite project of turning the switch. We need a mass movement. And I think we agree on that. But but mass movements take multiple forms and they don't have to be just on the shop floor. Right. I guess that's what we, we would suggest. And also and also movements have had all different victories and losses throughout time. Like that's always like a like when people say, well, this strategy didn't work. It's like, well, all your other strategies have also failed at different times. Like things work and fail. Like we also like, yeah, well, reify history. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I think like in everyone's own mind, they have to analytically determine what they think is the primary causal factor because in actuality, these things always move together. They mutually inform each other. They shape each other in various ways. You could change the quote unquote superstructure and the base will be changed, blah, 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 blah. But I think ultimately one has to det uh, determine where one sees the locus of power in a given society. Um, and I would say it's actually reifying liberalism and re reifying specifically progressivism to, to determine, to locate the primary force of power in the legal structures that regulate the interaction of capital in it's money in, or money or money, which is very, you know, you ever read that book, book, filthy lucre, like, yes, money is a technology through which capital is mediated and exchanged. I, I totally agree. And, and, and regulating how money is exchanged will obviously have an effect on capital. Um, that's, I have, that's a yeah. you know, classical view that that's like a classical economic view. And so we come from a heterodox tradition that that situates money as a productive it's the productive yeah. agent, right? I mean, I think you could actually find that in Smith. I mean, I think like the invention of tradition is is like the invention of the neoclassical tradition has like edged out or s sought out a lot of these like Ricardo and Smith and the physiocrats. I think that there are a lot more like there, there's a lot more strands there. I mean, this has been a while, but I did do a, um, a field in economic and business history. So I like read all these guys and there's a lot more there. Uh, and they, I think they're almost all men. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot there. I think there's a lot more there that one could take on. But I agree in the neoclassical tradition as, as, as constructed in the American Academy over the course of the 20th century. This is that that's what's taken from them. But I do agree. Money is productive, of course. I mean, I, ultimately, anything is productive in a sense. If you're, if you're talking philosophically, like I'm not a 19th century Marxist. I, I, I mean, he was writing at a particular time. But I still would say um, that the major locus of power is still who owns capital. Again, capaciously defined sure. in this, in, in sort of the original means of production sense. You know, it's not just fact, it's like literally the structures that determine society. Absolutely, and ownership, importantly, right, we would also want to historicize as a legal matter, as a, as a, it's a legal function, right? Property is not this private, Thing. One of our critiques that I kind of instinctively get, I don't know if it's like this imminentist about power, right? The sense that power is just like this devouring thing, this mystic force we're up against. And that's part of our critique of the way the base superstructure uh, model analogy can be mobilized, where it has the sense of literally a craving for gravity. Like we need the base, we're floating away from into the superstructure. And it's this gravity of power of reality. and. And I think that analogy can have quite repressive fascist logics of contraction as opposed to we can democratically expand. I mean, I think that you have to be fair. I don't think many people have been um, doctrinaire about the base superstructure model for 100 years. I mean, if you go back to the oh, teens... No, the because 20s, they use it arbitrarily. That's the whole thing. Well, I think it's an easy thing to explain to people, right? When In Marxism 101, when I do my Marxist economics lecture... It's a very powerful thing to explain to Americans who have never thought about this before. 
what it works. But if you're talking about sophisticated Marxist thinking, uh, I, I don't think vulgar Marxism has been particularly powerful but, for a long, long time. Right. But this is precisely the point that I like when we teach, like, I, you know, I, I think I think it's the same way in which this sort of unconscious desire. Right. Even you talked about material, the material structures. Right. And, and you know full well and I know, you know, full well, because I've read your work that this is a, a reductive way of thinking of things. But, but there's a reason why analytically we're, we're, we're drawn to this because of its simplicity. But the point is, is in the point that we wanna make is to always defamiliarize it at the level of, you know, we can even bring in Smith here, right? There is this assumption of a, of a sort of prior to monetary provisioning and structuring and, and social structuring that is analytically at the root, while at the same time, we can all say, oh, okay, we know, like we know, and we can be sophisticated about this, but our instinctual analytical function always moves to that a priori barter structure or that a priori material structure outside of abstract mediation, right? And that's what, that's a central critique that I think we wanna connect to MMT's understanding of the legal history of money into then our, our, our praxis, right? And, and how we as leftists move forward into resisting and re-articulating structures. And it's it's not is, liberal, it's not liberal legal movements. It's, it's popular, right? That's the idea is to have democratic legal structures. I think like this clearly is a site of struggle for any leftist movement seriously about, serious about governing, of course. But that, that, that's also a, um, if we're thinking in like the actual world of political strategy, if I were to ask an average American, who is your enemy? I want them to say people who are rich. I don't want, to, want them to say lawyers. So that's almost a different question. But yes, in any sort of seriously governing leftist movement, we'll need our own monetar monetarist technocrats who are able to manipulate the money supply, who are able to manipulate the structures of legal governance in order to affect um, the owners of capital and the, um, the regulation of the means of production. I think I totally agree with that. Right. I think that's absolutely necessary. Yeah, like I think the point is that we want to make the, the lawyers our Schmidtian enemy to mobilize populism. That's not the point. The point is that why do we need to know whether it's the lawyers or this specific owner over here? Like, I feel like that's a, I I would think disagree that's a different way of thinking about it. I am actually... I mean, I'm not a Schmidian in his political commitments, but I actually think the identification of an enemy is absolutely central to political change. Like if you look at the New Deal, 31, 32, 33, one of the enabling conditions of actually getting this transformation of the American state were like show trials is too much, but it's also not wrong. Like, have you ever heard of the PCORA hearings? No. No, I don't know about Teach us. Go read about the PCORA hearings because this is basically what gets the SEC going. You need enemies in order to mobilize people politically. Well, I think that's a fundamental wrong move that liberalism made after 19 um well it identified a fake enemy or, or the that's left that's what i'm saying is well, like we have enemies. dangerous the yeah we have enemies but it, it's dangerous the way people tend to paint them that's the thing is like it, i think they're incorrectly located and sometimes. it's ineffectual <laughs> i think i think bezos yeah. wants to be the univocal enemy right yeah. but the point is is that he isn't this sort of all-powerful sovereign, right? He's not the source, yeah. That's right, and so what, what we would want to, if we, what we want as a sort of public education campaign, because at the Modern Money Network, I mean, that is what we are about, right? We are about public education. And, you know, that's why I, I'm, you know, on top of research, of course, but that's also why I'm, I'm trying to be in academia is because is we very much believe in this education component. And 
sure, we want people to say Jeff Bezos is our enemy, but importantly, we want a broader understanding of the way the system works to be at the root of that of that critical pose, right? Of that critical Or else gesture. people end up thinking that, that like they end up thinking like Kanye, that like the way to solve our problems is just to take a part of Bezos's money, you know? Or you get then social wealth fund or you get then tax to pay for a UBI, which leaves the structures of production in place, which is not just as you, um, as you well know, a domestic structure, obviously, right? And so, and this is why it's important to actually ask the question, what are the means of production, right? And, and so you can't see the means of production without that constitutive agency-ridden structure of legality at its root. And it's not even just a strategic matter or a, like a post-1970 matter, like a post-gold standard matter or anything like that. This is, a, this is a historical project as well. And bringing it back to that, on, in the Weimar question as well, I mean, I think, there, I mean, I have read the likes of Hilferding suggesting that you just have to let capitalism, right, this otherization of the economy run its course, right? And, and it will enter crisis, and then we will be able to take advantage of that without actually understanding the way the legal structures and, and the way his own agency as a political actor influenced this sort of collective, you know, social anti-fascist project that, you know, he found himself a, as a part of, right? And so this is why I think fascism as a historical matter is important because we actually do see a link between reifying capital and both fascism and liberalism because that is, that is what joins them together because fascism, of course, has its own answer to this reification and otherization of capital, which is structurally, we know what that is, right? But, but liberalism is doing it too. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I think that's a, a a good political project. I think we may disagree on its popular mobilizing effects, um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is a problem for the emergent left technocratic elite to take seriously, um, which is what I mean, essentially trying to do in the foreign policy arena, you know, with a, a different set of institutions. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, that, that uh, that's totally that's totally sound to me. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I think like where I would agree with Prisman is I, I think that that project will go nowhere without some sort of mobilized base um, for a variety of reasons. But yeah, I, I, I'm fine with that. I think it's an important thing to do. Yeah, I mean, we can agree on we need movements. I mean, obviously, right? I, I just, it doesn't have to be the uh, like only on the factory floor is what we, we'd say, right? It, it must well, necessarily also, also be there. rethinking factory floors. Like exactly. <laughs> Building institutions is a f movement, is a base, quote unquote, is a factory floor. I mean, we want to create institutions that mobilize people to think, to continue those institutions. And yeah, like having accountability, that could be trials against executives, that could be a uh, a ran, uh, you know, a rand that's not a rand, that's not a liberal war rand. We can employ people to, I don't know, they could be like, you know, how rand were doing drugs, but they could do that about uh, international popular farming. I don't know, whatever the fuck. The point is that we can organize things to function well and employ people within that. That's the whole point. That is what the quote unquote base is. So then I think the next step of the project would be to seriously think through how you plan to organize those institutions. Because that's like very, very difficult. Like uh, it's actually easy in foreign policy. 
because foreign policy and like other spheres um, is like extremely elite. There's probably 3,000 people in the country who really have an influence on American foreign policy making. So you actually can infiltrate it through the creation of something like the Quincy Institute or a more left-wing equivalent. Um, I think that the, the project for you guys to think through going forward is specifically what type of institutions you build, where are they located, who is funding them, who's being hired in them, who's doing the educating and stuff like that. I mean, I think that's an important next step in the project because the project is, I mean, to me, um, commonsensically correct, of, of course. Um, but yeah, so that, that would be interesting to, for you guys to, to spend um, time thinking through that. Absolutely. And, it, you know, I, I just to say it's it's sort of ongoing um, in a way. I mean, you know, we're always trying to think through strategically in that way. And, and it's helpful. And, you know, we do take seriously this sort of, you know, your work on the think tank sort of structure and how that operates in foreign policy as well. The, um, the sort of way that neo like neoliberalism came into be in that sort of historical structure, whether you're thinking about Murawski or others, um, in, 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 or Quinn Slobodian or others, other ways of thinking of thought collectives and, and, and how historians have, have sort of contextualized the way ideas influence policy, I guess would be another way of, of, of saying it. But I do kind of feel like this is a sort of a natural pivot point in the conversation, maybe to talk about a sort of more contemporary, maybe more fiery though. I also think, you know, that we agree and disagree in, in different ways, um, which is the other aspect of what brought along here, which, and I think probably what started some of the conversation between us was um, this question of provocation and what it means to, to have provocative ideas in, in this sort of discursive space and, and what opening up space for new ideas means. Because uh, it's something we, uh, as perhaps listeners can see, are, are thinking actively about because we do see ourselves as diverging from some I want to piss off ideas. as much people as possible so that they will all adore me. Well, I, <laughs> Max, why don't you contextualize that? Because I think you, you responded to my tweet. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you tell, tell the listeners what was going on? Yeah, so, I mean, essentially... There, there are aspects of the left that I think on my read are doing things that are not only unhelpful, but that are, um, you know, actively creating alliances with reactionaries and right wingers that don't have uh, the, the marginalized and, and a sort of universalist vision that is non-exclusionary, right, an inclusive vision as their top priority. And so therefore, those sort of alliances, those we've talked about on this podcast, right? Um, whether one wants to call it red brownism or this sort of populist sort of imaginary, um, they do and, and have historically ended up casting the sort of interests of minority groups and the marginalized off in the name of building a sort of coherent working class. And, and we find that incredibly problematic, not only for historical reasons, which, you know, we could, we've touched on, but also um, because it implies that we have to sacrifice, right, in this zero-sum way, one group in the name of another group, or find some sort of really baseline common denominator status of inclusion, where everything else then becomes a project of of, of, of unnecessary, right? And so in a non-zero-sum vision, we want to reject that those two modes. And so I, you know, suggested that you were sort of in a way that I felt was, was sort of better than what I know of your work, uh, allowing th those associations, giving those associations weight in ways that were unhelpful for a left project. And, you know, so that's, that's being charitable. What, 
Fantasy Association writing for American Affairs. I mean, that would be one. That would certainly be one association. Sam Moyne is out of the picture. I Look, I, I don't think anyone is totally out of the picture. I have problems with Sam Moyne's work in in other ways, right? But I, I, I think alliances with Julian Crane are a real awful idea for a lot of reasons, right? And so you would define writing in American affairs as alliance. I think it's lending weight to a political project, right? It's not a, it's not like a arm, an arm, an arm alliance. Um, but importantly, also, it's not. It's also the logic behind it. It's the wanting to have that. It's the ideological yes. project of we need to reduce down to our bare bones that's most coherent, or else we'll we'll piss people off. So we have to stay small and not have too many characteristics, or we'll inflate and people will not like us. Like actively seeking that out because that's how real workers think basically that's how normal americans think these instead of the idea that you mobilize and co-constitute consciousness and that you could have like a project of i know it didn't fully work but still like a a rainbow nation that includes black lives matter that includes a green new deal that includes uh the all the latino mobilization around bernie that highlighting these types of things brings in more people and makes you stronger as opposed to we don't want to piss anybody off and maybe we'll we'll convince some right wingers because you know we will if we don't look too queer you know i mean i i I would i would say like whether i i don't think for example that i would probably personally write for american affairs but i also wouldn't say writing an article in a 15-year career one article for American affairs is equivalent to a red brown alliance. No, well, I'm not, it's not to suggest that, it, that there's why. equivalence being drawn, but the problem, like there's a reason why you wouldn't write for American affairs. And that's what I just want to like, that's the point, right? But not, but it, it doesn't mean that particular constituencies aren't also worth tr- trying to read out, read out to, especially in a pluralistic democracy, but not, but right, that's but not, not the on way, zero-sum but not terms. through American affairs. Right. American and not affairs on zero sum terms. American Affairs isn't going to bring them somewhere radical. It's not going to work. One lefty article in American Affairs isn't going to bring people to the left and lefty to be generous. Um, I think it's going to keep people out of the left. It's going to scare people. I don't think it has much of an effect either way. No, but Uh, that ideological thing, you know, we can't say defund the police. We're going to piss people off. That really alienates plenty of people who are interested in politics. If you just say, no, defund the police doesn't, People don't like it. It's like, well, a lot of people don't like when you say you don't like it in the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, I mean, that that to me is just, again, the left kind of eating itself, um, which is a long and storied tradition well, of in American history. <laughs> well, exactly. And this is but the point is, is the eating itself on on our analytical reading is a function of having to do this sort of zero sum prioritization. Right. And, and it's actually like publishing in Julian Crane's magazine. I, you know, perhaps I'm forgetting his first name, but in publishing in American affairs is actually analytically, again, doing this reification of capital in the same logical structure as right wingers do. And what we often say on this podcast is you're not going to out exclude the right. Right. The gambit has to be inclusion, which is not to say that that's easy. Of course, we're not we're not naive on, uh, you know, here. The, but the point is, I think, is that, so there's a linkage here between this sort of making, out, doing pluralistic outreach, which again, we agree about doing pluralistic outreach, but that doesn't mean 
we we have to like uh, talk about needing enemies, right? Our pluralisms are what bring us together. And like, we want to embrace that, trying to shut it down and say, oh, you're going to offend the regular people. That doesn't go anywhere. Where is that going? I think that um, the anger that, that, I, that I think you're directing at, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that there are people on the left who advocate essentially protectionist politics, right? A nation state politics, effectively, right? And um, that is not uh, in particular the politics that I promote for a variety of reasons. Um, but I also think it's an argument worth taking seriously, given that we live in a world of nation states and actually existing, the actually existing regulations that we have. So I guess I just don't fundamentally think I, it's not the, my position, but I don't think it's it's dismissed as I don't think one can so easily dismiss it as anti-left or, or anti-progressive, given the actually existing realities of, of the world which is that we don't live in a world of transnational organization. We don't live in a world of democratic international governance. We don't even live in a world of transnational working class solidarity. But, so in the actually existing world, I don't think you could dismiss the type of nation state oriented politics as, um, as, as racist or as necessarily counterproductive. Well, so here's the thing. And I like that you said this because here's where I think we differ from, because, because it's not just that though. I do see what you're saying. Um, it's also that the identification of what nation states are at the, and what international finance is, is predicated on a series of orthodox assumptions about the way that, that money is functioning in international economies, right? So like, you know, I mean, we, there's this a huge rabbit hole to go down and, and I don't necessarily want to touch on all of it, but we have like a critique, not just of that component too, like, but... There, that is just one node in a symptomological structure of ill-conceived definitions and analytical identifications of the way capital interacts with law and with movements and with the so-called superstructure. And so, I mean, what, you know, you, you see this as well in, you could even look to Gramsci, for example, and see the way that sort of epiphenomenal structure is operating in his text, which we have in this podcast before as well. So it's not just protectionism, right? It's this sense that, again, we need a sort of common denominator boiled down to the lowest common denominator, this sort of Scandinavian project of social democracy that ascribes everything the left to, that the left should work for as that sort of predominantly white imaginary for thinking transformation and change. And this is why we center abolition, abolitionism on the show, because we think that's a counter imaginary that speaks to transformation and, and an, an imaginary about the future that doesn't allow for the need to make alliances or reach out to people who are our enemy. That's the point, which is not to say that any one, you know, individual do dealership owner is like the univocal Schmidian enemy, but that there's a there's an ideological structure that we're pushing up against. But that that's an argument to make, and I think what actually happens on the left are people dismissed as racist, and I think that's what actually happens. But your argument is an argument to make with a comrade who has a similar goal, which is a human emancipation. And though you might have different approaches to that goal, what often actually happens is people are more, in a very liberal way, neoliberal way, people are moralistically dismissed as out, uh, beyond the pale, which to me is just internecine left eating itself. Well, I was having a conversation on Twitter with, with your colleague, uh, Ben Burgess, and the way he tweeted about it that I think was one thing that set us all off was he said, 
it was something like it's obviously the right take that abolitionism is too extreme and not the right discourse and it was like from the outset very dismissive and yeah when your position positionality is white i'm not saying you're racist but i would say that's a rude uh way to go about talking about it and going about it saying well uh nobody's really convinced me quickly they've given me a reading list and you've written books and you're getting you're, you you can't you get mad if somebody cites angela davis you say oh i don't think anybody's paragraph has has given me the right idea. It's like, okay, you can say you disagree, but to be from the outset dismissive, from the outset acting like nobody has ever stated the case, there's an asymmetry in this comradely discussion oftentimes that people aren't saying, well, I disagree. They're saying, you're definitely wrong. Uh, I know better. You have, nobody's ever convinced me. I don't know, like, I don't think it's an accurate painting of the way things happen. Things, that's the thing, like, there are these abusive, logics and i get it like it's really hard to have a good political conversation in the media it's hard everywhere to have a, a good political conversation that's history right but like and it's hurtful and it's painful and we've been there on both sides but like no it comes from both sides i mean like like uh i mean i know i know ben very well he is a comrade you know and a lot of the people who have been dismissed on the left are comrades and i think that the way that they have been treated is just not particularly <laughs> comradely. Uh, and I also think it's particularly destructive because, I mean, I think that there are probably weaknesses on both sides of the argument that would be able to actually be brought up through discussion. But I think through a lot of uh, particular reasons, one, this is always, the left doesn't like hierarchy. So like there's, there's uh, a long-term trend about not wanting to defer to the people, but also like social media is all about brand building. And I think these technologies literally push people in particular directions that's actually been uh, destructive. And I think there's a, a utility to get back to the original prompt of the type of provocations that people then, you know, uh, jump on um, particular individuals who are willing to make provocations and basically dismiss them as racist assholes, so which I, I don't think is correct. <laughs> so I, I guess like I wanna, I wanna affirm as aspects of this. Cause like, I think provocations are useful. And like, I mean, we just dealt with 48 hours of, you know, hundreds of Marxists saying that we were stupid and disgusting. So like, I, like I, I, I am, right. Thank you. <laughs> so like, I get, I get like, and we try, we are trying to be provocative in our work and reject certain components of, you know, Marxist canon that we find to be overly solidified and overly simplistic. And so provocation is, is absolutely like, I think important, but the, I think what I would say is, is to when it leads to saying, oh, we actually do need cops. That's not a provocation, right? That's the hegemonic order asserting itself in the name of edgy prov provocation. Like, again, which is to say, like, I don't... Which is the point of the cancel culture debate, which is right. not that things don't happen that are unjust, that it's not that it's, like, a fucking mess that's not, you know, like, and there's not a clean, like, Max wrote about his clean, what is it, Clean Air Act for media? Like, it is a really, it's a yeah. neoliberal shithole, shit but yeah, yeah. when people, people use it disingenuously, like, Chappelle can say, I made a bunch of transphobic jokes, but come on, like, ah... It's a provocation. You're canceling me. That's disingenuous. Like you can't just. But what I think has actually happened is that there, in the last five years, when everyone suddenly became the leftist, uh, there's emerged these totems, and that these these totems from Jacobin. Uh, Probably the biggest ones are Jacobin and Chapa, which is ironically probably how 98% of people who criticize them came to the left. Uh, there's now like so much rancor 
directed at these organizations that I just think is completely ridiculous um, and completely disconnected from any sort of potential left-wing project. And that these types of provocations, uh, either in Jacobin or on Chapo or on any one of the other ones, should actually be welcomed and should not result in the the, the pile-ons that are, frankly, counterproductive that they always seem to do online. It's it's just, the way you're making it sound like Jacobin and Chapo have hierarchy, that they're in charge, and it's like... Jacobin does have power in this small left space, and they do try to shut down momentum on MMT. They do try, they shut down momentum on understanding what's going on in the economy with MMT. They shut down ideas about abolitionism. Like, I'm not saying they're univocally bad, I get it, but if you, if you are in the power position, you have to be accountable. And why, we don't have to listen to everything anybody says. Yeah, like, I don't have to defer to Jacobin or Chapo. Deference. I said nothing about deference. What I, and what I, I agree said- that some people make them univocal enemies, and that's not productive either. But when you're being actively attacked by, you know, a way of thinking, and they're saying, "Oh, you're you're out," I'm outside. You know, like that is a there is like a tradition of like on the right wing, white men saying, "You're not listening to my my provocation. You're not understanding me. I'm so oppressed." Like, who's getting to talk first? Like. And also, I don't think Chapo radicalized everyone. I think it was part of like a whole media sphere and there's different people who've done a lot of good work and that media sphere, yeah, comes out of what's happening and people's scarcity and non-scarcity and political decisions. And that's all connected. Like we're all participating. Like, I don't... And, and I think this is where maybe we're sort of nearing the end of the conversation. Yes. But I do want to say one thing on this podcast. We take the aesthetics of Chapo very seriously. And, and that's why, you know, and so well, I, guess I would say just very quickly, just on Chapo. Yeah. I don't think you guys really think you came hard at me in that tweet. Yeah. Very hard at me. Uh-huh. I don't think you really think that because you had Matt Chrisman on. Well, I, I don't think it's univocally that like that they all stand in for each other. Right. I, I we, we had Matt Chrisman on because we thought Matt Chrisman, we could actually have a conversation about him on a particular node. I don't think, like, in general, I do not think any individual, as a philosophical matter, is is one thing, right? I do not think that. But I do think people use their agency to do things that are unhelpful and that are exclusionary. And I think that that's a problem that is being under-discussed, especially in the way that Nanny suggested, in the naturalization of this sort of these sort of power dynamics, because there's this self-exculpation that says we're just a podcast. But at the same time, as you suggested, a lot of people were radicalized by those nodes. And so the shape of the way they talk and and, and create a sort of vision of, of politics needs to be on the table to be critiqued. Right. Of course, that's not what I'm talking about. And sure. you know, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, no, I, I know what you're talking about. I don't want deference. I want critique. That is not what I'm talking about. We're talking about a different valence where people are literally considered beyond the pale, people who are not racist, people who have who have very similar goals to the people who are criticizing them. And I think that is incredibly problematic and not productive in any way, shape or form. Sure. And I guess just the last thing I would say is that it's not that like people don't have to be uniformly identified as racist to recapitulate racism. Because racism is built into our structures of zero-sum precarity. Right? Like we don't want to, we don't want to like accidentally have left movements. That if your left movement isn't sufficiently working and actively thinking about those issues and mobilizing around them, then your movement won't be sufficiently radical. It's racist if you're not radical, honestly. Like 
it's not personally racist, it's systematically racist. I mean, I would say both Jacobin and Chapo um, are actively anti-racist. But you could be more. Sure, and then you might have disagreements about um, about focus or about emphasis, and those should all be criticized. But what actually happens is these organizations, as you both well know, are often tarred as literally racist, which is just inaccurate. I agree that it doesn't get us anywhere except in the sense of identifying the logics that are at issue. I think the reason it gets so vitriolic sometimes, too, is like no progress is made. Like, you know, like Jacobin runs one thing and then, you know, we had Dan Berger on and they they run one thing by some someone about abolition. Then they're like, OK, you can say the other thing. And then they never talk about it again. And it's like, we're not necessarily getting heard a lot of times. So there is the sense of like- people of Jacobin, as any group of people who run any organization have a set of particular commitments correct. and they might not agree with yours and they are to- they should totally be criticized. Well, exactly. I, I, yeah, and, and, and that's totally fine. But again, that's not what actually happens in empirical reality. What happens is they become totems of like capital E evil in a very counterproductive way. And you both know that's what happens. The obsession with these institutions on Twitter is crazy, it is ridiculous and outsized and isn't what – I'm not saying no one can be critiqued or criticized or sure, but that's what you refer to. That comes what from are you supposed to do if you're? Yeah, what are you supposed to do if you're never getting heard? There's a lot of different approaches. I mean, I don't want to say you could found new institutions. You could have your own sphere. I mean, I would say you, what you would want to do is found a new institution. And then build a democratic public for your institution, sure. as opposed to becoming obsessed with this one very popular thing. Whether and it's popular, well, we would still care though, because if they're popular and have power on the left, we want good things for the left. And if you are using a wrong way of understanding the economy to mobilize the left, we want you to, in a comradely way, we would like to come together and fucking figure shit out about what's actually going on. And that's not what's happening because there is. There is a real way things happen. And if your analysis is just like not good or like toxic or incorrect. Yeah. Okay. That's, toxic is a big claim. I'm saying toxicities that are around different strands of toxicity, not you are toxic, you are evil. Things that are toxic. And, but I, I, and I, I just want to say, Dan, I know what you're talking about. I do yeah, of know course. what you're talking about. And, and of it's course, happened to us and we've done it. We get it. It's yeah, a yeah. thing. And it's, I it's think structurally there. Every, right. Course. Everyone's b- variously guilty of it structurally. But I do think reflexively, like you're talking about building institutions, that's what we're doing. But building institutions is not, we're going to build this little silo over here. And then there's a marketplace of ideas that will just sort it out. Right. It's about actively creating space for your ideas in an institution, right? And so, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what this is about. And there are multiple strategies and it's not always perfect and it's messy, but I, I mean, I do think systemic critiques are important and people have agency to reproduce systemic, you know, systemic harm, right? And so this needs to be a, a, a discussion, right? And, you know, if people wanna come out and say, I was wrong and now I think this, I'm not going to be the one to say you don't have any place anywhere, right? But people also aren't entitled to positions of power and authority in, right, in, a, in, some, in some other sense. So that this is a messy conversation. And like I said, I don't think there's that much disagreement, except for the fact that I think we're all variously guilty in one way or another, and we should be reflexive about that. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say that anyone is worthy of, of, of 
deference, which is essentially what you're saying. But I also wouldn't say that anyone who I, the usual suspects that I know we're all thinking of, and I don't want to name names, none of those people have fundamental value commitments that, that I would consider to be toxic. Sure. But that's that, a very that's liberal great. understanding of, 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 of what that, what, what toxicity or racism means, right? Explain. Like well, like personal value judgments, like that's like, it's like, People say but that's what you, do when you call someone racist and try to excise someone from a community. That's a personal value judgment. <laughs> I'm I, I agree. I do agree at some level, but the point words are slippery. Right. And that's their both their power. And of course, sometimes the confusion. We know this from the translation uh, German thing that was at issue with Nadia. <laughs> but um, I love words. <laughs> But um, but the point is, is, you know, excising from community and slash calling someone and indicting someone as racist. Me personally, I'm not suggesting like I, you know, it's very complicated. And I know everyone who has, you know, family members who who say things that are offensive knows this. It's all very complicated. But structures are at work here. And people are arguing strategically that it's good to say these controversial things because we might win over some right wingers. People are structurally key. arguing that. Yes, it's not just like, point. and it's, it's, it's a strategy. It's not just like, sometimes I say things I don't really mean. And you know, it's just a joke. Sometimes I say bourgeois women are, are having hysterectomies willy nilly, but it's just for the class war. It's like, okay, but you're actively uh, invoking something that's anti-women's health. I actually, I, I have to go, but on that last point, I would say we have to be able to understand context. I mean, we're not babies. You know, when someone's giving well, a tongue in cheek- Depends on my mood. <laughs> I mean, we all know what we're talking about. And I think millennials are particularly annoying about this. Like, we all know when someone's being provocative and funny. Like, we're, we're this isn't a, a, a testimony before Congress. And we need to be a little more forgiving with people who are particularly uh, place themselves as essentially flaneurs, who are making provocative, funny statements to why things a magazine. They're not the devil incarnate. They're not evil. They're actually our, our friend in a fundamental Schmidtian sense. They share our value commitments. They share our world thing and what we actually our worldviews. And what we actually wind up doing is destroying people who uh, really should be who who are our friends. And I don't think that's right. But what are the what is the point of the joke? In that particular context, my understanding is that it was right after Lena Dunham had published an essay about that. So it was like a tongue-in-cheek reference to that. I don't think anyone was saying that this is a good public policy. I mean, people, we have to be able to understand context. And if we don't have to, under, if we choose not to understand context, understand the context, the common sense context that we all know is there. We're doing ourselves no favors. That's what I think about that. Does that make sense? So, I mean, I think it makes I think it makes sense. I mean, I think obviously we disagree to a certain extent, but um, I, I suppose you know now's time to 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 wrap up the interview as you, as you have to go. But I think hopefully the the differences and similarities will come out in the wash. And I really, you know, speaking really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and you know, thanks so much for coming on Superstructure. As you say.
Yes, I'm a flustered 